Again, welcome to Thursday in the city. Uh, First Amendment, how do we... um, how do we continue to abide by the First Amendment in an increasingly pluralistic society? That is, not everybody is on the same page with regard to belief and practice and so forth. So how do we do that in an increasing, increasingly pluralistic society? Our guest this evening is Lynn Robbins. Lynn is a senior partner at Robbins Travis in South Lake, that's in the Fort Worth area. Uh, he's uh, in civil litigation, and this is after 13 years as senior general attorney. Uh, eternity. It may have been an eternity. Senior general attorney at BNSF Railroad, uh, and also uh, serves as an adjunct professor uh, at Baylor Law School. And incidentally, he's co-pastor of Trinity River Church, um, in Fort Worth, and so um, would you please, well, and he's a longtime friend of mine, but despite that, would you please welcome Lynn Robbins here tonight? Yeah, and I do mean a longtime friend. He and I were friends at Baylor, and we continue to be, uh, be good friends to this day, and I greatly value his dear friendship and his presence in my life. Um, But tonight he's going to have his lawyer hat on, and you know the world doesn't have enough lawyers. So we need more more lawyers in the world, don't we, Lynn? Yeah, exactly. Um, And uh, we need more people to grumble about, and therefore I give you the lawyer. Uh, Okay. Um, Here, Lynn, here's how the First Amendment reads, and I I don't tell you that didactically or to teach you anything, but I just want us all to know this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of of grievances. What does that even mean, Lynn? Yeah, okay, all right. Oh, David, is his mic on? I don't know. Do we need... Hello, this is a dead mic. I'm speaking into blue. Okay, we'll try that for a while. Okay. All right. And we've got a few more mics in case we run out of more batteries. So, uh, great. So, Why change batteries when you can change mics? Okay, go ahead. So, asking what that means is, of course, a very broad question. There's all sorts of law and history of, of it. Um, you've got six freedoms outlined in the First Amendment. You've got the Establishment Clause, which is that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That's the no national religion or no state religion clause. You have the free exercise clause, our freedom to exercise religion. You have free speech, you have freedom of the press, you have freedom to assemble, and you have freedom to petition the government. Okay. Uh, don't get hung up on the fact that it says Congress. Uh, in 1789, when the Bill of Rights was passed, uh, 
that's what there was, um, but that has been expanded, the Supreme Court through the 14th Amendment and through, well, the Congress through the 14th Amendment, but the Supreme Court cases have explained that it's not just Congress, but any state actor. Any governmental any entity. Any governmental entity. So okay. it applies to your state legislature, it applies to your city council. Uh, it's, it says Congress in the language, but it's, a, it's an application to government not restricting those freedoms. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, now does the, does the First Amendment intend that government should remain neutral uh, with respect to religion, agnostic, if you will, to religion? Uh, and, you know, so I, I just... Okay, so, so that's a little bit of a loaded question. Um, at the time the Bill of Rights was passed, that more than half of the, the 13 colonies, which became the original 13 states, more than half of them had state-established religion. Um, if you were in... Yeah, I think we forget this, uh, but... Right. They, they uh, Massachusetts had... The government supported the Congregationalist Church. Okay. Uh, New Jersey, they supported the Catholic Church. A number of the states, Virginia, North Carolina, more of the southern states had uh, government monies, tax monies going into the coffers of Protestant churches. So the immediate issue that the, that the, Bill of, that the Establishment Clause was addressing was that, that we would not have the governments actively supporting certain religions and therefore calling one religion out above another as a state-established religion. Got it. Got now, it. Brian has asked the question, does that mean that the government is supposed to stay agnostic as to religion? If, that, if what Brian means by that is, does the Establishment Clause mean that government is not supposed to favor one religion over the other, the answer to that is yes. Okay. Right? We're, we're not supposed to have a government that says we will give this particular religious viewpoint favors over others, or conversely, we will punish people who hold this particular religious viewpoint. When you say, does it mean that government has to be neutral, it, I'm, I'm going to use a catchphrase here. You've, you've heard about the, the fundamental wall between church and state, the separation of church and state. That has certain meanings. It doesn't necessarily mean that religion has to be completely divorced from politics. It okay. doesn't mean that once you enter into the world of government, you have to set all your religious beliefs aside. It means that you can't favor your religion or anyone else's religion okay. in what you do. Okay. Now, uh, we're, it's just interesting to me that, that all of these, you know, assembly and religion and free speech itself are grouped together in this amendment, because I think the framers understood that all of this has to do with the expression of ideas, uh, I think, uh, in, in, um, in how people carry this out, the ideas that are inherent in religious practice, the ideas that are inherent in assembly, the ideas that are inherent, inherent in somebody speaking. And so we, we are talking about um, the freedom, then, to espouse ideas in, in all of these various forms. But we do want to, uh, the, the nature of this gathering tonight is to focus on free speech itself, uh, the, the notion of free speech. So uh, help us understand the societal benefits. Why is that there, the societal benefits of free speech? Clearly, there are other societies in this world uh, that other geopolitical entities that do not uh, enshrine free speech uh, highly like we purport to do. So uh, what are the societal benefits? 
without delving too much into arcane political philosophy and some of the books you can read about this. I think tonight's uh, topic is arcane political philosophy, as a matter of fact. Okay. Well, in no, that I'm case. Just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, Please. That was a license. No. Um, <laughs> why is free speech good? That's the question. Why? I mean, we can say we have freedom of speech, but if we don't as a society accept that freedom of speech has value, why do we care? Uh, as Brian says, these are all linked together in the First Amendment as an idea of ideas, and maybe even more fundamentally, this concept of liberty that the framers were going oh, for yeah, with the Bill of yeah, Rights, okay. this idea of, of freedom from government restraints. But when we narrow it down among these six rights in the First Amendment, I mean, you go for others in the Bill of Rights, quartering of troops, bearing arms. There are lots of different liberties here. When we talk specifically about free speech, there are a number of societal benefits you could find. I want, to, I want to mention four of them. One would be what we call the marketplace of ideas. That if we have freedom of speech, you can put your idea out there, I can put my idea out there, Brian can put his idea out there, and if we have freedom, all of those ideas can be out there for all of society to hear and comprehend, and the idea and it's an economic idea. That's why it uses the idea of marketplace, is the most worthy idea will rise to the top. And people will be able to decide what they like best policy ideas. Should we, you know, you know pick your policy? What should the tax rate be? Mm -hmm. Well, we have a marketplace of ideas of different ways to look at it. And we let the marketplace compete, just like you do goods and services. The ones that are most worthy are the ones people are willing to spend the most money for. Same kind of idea. A second benefit would be uh, what we call the search for truth. The best way for us to find true answers to things is to let all of the different viewpoints speak. That's very closely related to the marketplace of ideas. If we let those ideas compete with one another, it's not just that we find the best idea, but in theory, we can find truth, at least where there is truth to be found. A third, a third societal benefit is, is, a, is a safety valve idea. If people aren't allowed to speak, if people aren't allowed to express their ideas, if the mm -hmm. government is restraining that, then they're more likely to turn to guns and bombs and rioting and that sort of thing. Allowing speech is a way for people to express themselves peacefully, cooperatively, uh, with, within society. In, in such a way that allows for a thriving of society. That, that, that's exactly right. Because you can express an idea with, with a weapon. Uh, well, which is the point. If you're not right. allowed to express it through speech, right. you're going to find another way to express right. it. Right, but that's and, not a way to thrive, though. That, it's self-defeating. And so you're going to end up having more of a chance of violence and writing. Right. So, so freedom of speech becomes a safety <clears throat> valve for mm -hmm. that. Okay. Well, now... Um, are there times when, when one First Amendment freedom clashes with another? You know, again, we're, we're backing off just a little bit from just the idea of free speech here because we have free speech, free exercise of religion, assembly. Are, do any of these uh, get crossways with each other? Well, they certainly can. I mean, the easiest example would be if Brian and I start talking at the same time. We're both exercising our freedom of speech, right. but we clash with each other. Yes. But on a more theoretical level, your free exercise of religion might clash with someone else's free speech. 
you're having a worship service and someone wants to come in and stand up in the middle of your worship service and start talking about the wonders of whatever it is they want to talk, okay? Or the freedom of the press may interfere with the freedom of assembly if the press is trying to get a newspaper out and other people want to have a protest. So there yeah, are yeah. times okay. when, thi right. when things can, I mean, just as a matter of time and space and how right. many people can talk at the same time. And so... Just saying I have the freedom to do this doesn't necessarily end the story because there are plenty of times when these freedoms can, can clash within the same three-dimensional space. What about expansion of freedoms? Talk a little bit about that. Um, modeling these kinds of things for other societies that may not be uh, really, uh, that may not have a history or a context for how to implement these things. Can we need to remember that, that when... The Bill of Rights was, was written and was passed. It was 1789. Uh, this American experiment had been going on for over 100 years already, right? We had had de Tocqueville. We had had Jefferson writing for a long time. We had had, so this, this. Yeah, these I, weren't just like, hey, I know, let's do this. So, this when we, so when we look now at, let's take Egypt, for example, five, eight years ago, and primarily through the magic of social media, you had Egypt having all this, sudden outbreak of freedom of expression. The Arab largely, Spring. The Arab Spring largely modeled on American freedoms that were transmitted to them through social media. Okay. But they didn't have a de Tocqueville. They didn't have 40 years of Jefferson and Madison writing for them. And so they didn't know what to do with that. That's, I, don't, I don't mean that You don't mean it condescendingly. I don't mean, I'm not condescending yeah. that they were too stupid. I just mean this takes a lot of basis and a lot of building up to know how to handle. These freedoms are, are dangerous. And so a, an inherent danger of the expression of freedoms here is if it is modeled in places that aren't yet ready for it. They need to be able to handle them carefully. So we have a responsibility how we use our freedoms here in showing them to people who have less experience in dealing with it. it this, what you just said, these freedoms are dangerous. Lynn, I think we, we miss that often. They, they are explosive because they, they and, we, and we have a system that can contain that. Well, and, there, and there's uh, another inherent danger. The, the, the legal scholars call it trivialization. When everything becomes the world's greatest freedom of speech issue, then nothing becomes important. Yeah, yeah. When, when we start um, glamorizing the, these fringe issues, your core First Amendment values, your core political speech, your core religious speech becomes just another in a long line of things, and it becomes comparatively less important. There's a, there's a, I'm not saying that things on the fringe don't need to be protected, but there's just a practicality here that within our society, and especially our pluralistic society, yeah. the more we push on the edges, the more there's a risk of trivializing the whole concept. Think about, I mean, you've, you've all heard the jokes about everything causes cancer, right? The more things you hear commercials <laughs> of, oh, that causes cancer, right. too. After a while, we just quit caring. We don't care. We, yeah. just don't, we just don't care anymore, right? It's the same kind of idea. We need to be, when we're protecting ideas, we have to, I think, legal scholars will tell you, you have to be careful of how far you want to push it before society's whole thinks, oh, there they go again. Well, are, are you, now... You seem to be implying that some of this may be happening or has happened, the trivialization of free 30 years ago, speech. 40 years ago, certainly 60 years ago, First Amendment free speech protections were almost entirely, if you read the court cases, they were almost entirely related to political speech. 
They were related to talking about issues, supporting your candidates, that sort of thing. Forty years ago, sixty years. Ago? Forty, fifty, sixty years. Okay. Once, once we get into the early to mid seventies, when we start having freedom of speech expanded to commercial speech, for example, um, speech meaning of, what? Speech that's not political in nature, but rather the the freedom to advertise without restriction, advertise a product without restriction. I think we'd all say you have the freedom to do it. Y'all were just talking about this with the, you know, with Chick-fil-A. Okay. No, that was the alternate universe. My we weren't fault. talking about Chick-fil-A. Uh, chick, uh, Affle, whatever it was. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that that doesn't deserve protection, but, but there's a trade-off. When we start protecting the speech of children, when we start, protect, when we start saying, well, free speech uh, is not just verbal speech, but it also protects uh, your physical expression, okay. what kind of jacket you can wear to school, right? right? Or, when, or you, when, when the Supreme Court says that a, that a rebellious teenager gets to wear a jacket with an obscenity on the back of it because it's expressing his political views, okay, but what that does is it, in turn, to some people, trivializes the whole concept of freedom of speech. Right. So there's an inherent trade-off here that we just have to be careful how we deal with. Well, and um, maybe I'm jumping ahead too far, but what, how do we judiciously, pun perhaps intended, apply the brakes there so that we can have some time to think about this kind of stuff? My personal view is I don't know that we apply the brakes. I'm in favor of expanding First Amendment rights. Okay. I'm, ex I'm in favor ex of expanding our recognition of what I think are already First Amendment rights. Okay. But I think that we have to do it with our eyes open, that there is the risk here of trivialization, or there is the risk of modeling it for other societies. And so as we expand our, our recognitions, we can't do it with blinders on. We've got to make sure that we are explaining why this is all the same principle. Okay. I'm not saying that we need to cut out these, you know, we can only protect certain, certain ones and there's a trade-off. I'm just saying when it's expanded, we have to recognize there's a risk of this trade-off, and therefore we need to address it, we need to talk about it, we need to make sure our society understands. When I'm protecting this freedom of commercial speech, the basis for it is the same as why we were protecting political speech. I'm not adding on and watering down. This isn't just something else that causes cancer. This okay. is the same okay. freedom we've always been protected. It's just looking at it from a different view. It's more of a matter of educating our voters and our populace. Now, uh, let's talk... Like just we would want to educate the third world as we do it so that they handle these explosive rights properly. Right, right. Now, <clears throat> let's, let's talk just a second about um, the expansion... Uh, or follow that idea about the expansion of free speech rights, uh, college campuses. Uh, this has been a, uh, a focus of a lot of discussion of late because you have some schools that seem to disallow uh, certain present presenters and presentations to uh, occur on their campuses. Um, is this a and other people say, no, you know, we need to, especially in the university, we know we need to have this marketplace of ideas. Uh, thoughts, any thoughts on uh, what's going on with, with well, sure. those kinds of things? Um, or is that just overblown? Is no, it no, no, I don't think it's overblown at all. I do think that it's, when it's your ox getting gored, you're more, uh, <laughs> you're more aware of it, right? When the person who's not being allowed to speak happens to espouse the views you agree with, you, right. you notice it more. A couple things to keep in mind here. The first one is that... The First Amendment only applies to governmental actors.
okay? It's a, state, a, a requirement of a First Amendment issue is state action. So if we're talking about a private university, there may not be a First Amendment issue. There may be a lot of reasons why they're doing it wrong, but it's not a First Amendment issue. But let's keep it Got in the it. realm of just, public Just like if somebody is banned from Twitter, that's not censorship because that's Depends not the government. Depends on who's banning. If well, it's not the government. It, it. Yeah, if Twitter itself bans that's somebody, right. that's not the government. And so That's right. So, um, but let's, let's, let's take Brian's example and let's say it is a public university so we don't have the state action okay. All problem. Right. Let me, let me back up, I'll come back to this question, but let me back up with a couple of fundamental ideas that you need to keep in mind. As much as we value First Amendment freedom of speech, it is not absolute. There are, there are some restrictions on free speech that, that are pretty universally accepted. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? It's, it's a clear and present danger. Uh, obscenity. Um, fighting words, okay? Going up to someone and say, I think you're an SOB. Is, is the classic Supreme Court case. Right. Um, we allow that, we don't allow, I mean, blackmail is a crime. Threats to the life of the president are a crime. There are certain things that we, even though they are spoken, we still criminalize and everyone agrees, all right? Another kind of restriction Or that, libel or slander. Sure, that, yes, right. slander is another example. Okay. Another kind of restriction that's not one of those criminal ones, but that we always... That if, if we think about it, I think you would all agree with, are what are called time, place, and manner restrictions, okay? I'm allowed to give a political speech, but I'm not allowed to give a political speech through a bullhorn outside your bedroom window at 3 o'clock in the morning, okay? That's disturbing the peace. Even though I'm speaking, we all say that the government has the right to put reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. Okay. What they're not supposed to do is viewpoint restrictions. They can't say, it's all right for me to yell outside your window at 3 o'clock in the morning as long as they agree with what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the college example now. Clearly, there's no university that could allow any speaker that wanted to come to be there because there are only so many hours in the day, and the university's primary purpose is to educate students, and the students actually are supposed to go to class, and if they had, if they were, had speakers coming 24 hours a day, Okay, so, right. so right. all of us would say even a public university has the right to limit the number of speakers, limit where they speak. You know, they're not going to speak in the, uh, well, you, you, can, you can do your own examples, places where we wouldn't let them speak. We can right. have certain defined fora in which they could speak. So the issue is not can they restrict speakers. They have to, time, place, and manner. The issue is are they, are they exercising that right on a viewpoint basis? In other words, we're letting speakers who are in favor of, you know, we like conservatives, we don't like liberals, we like liberals, we don't like conservatives, we only want people who are in favor of a balanced budget. If you're going to speak in favor of deficit spending, you can't come speak, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. That becomes the issue. The, so I think what Brian is saying is right. It does raise a question, and it offends us when a college says, we're not going to let this person speak. Let's just be careful that we are being offended by, by an exercise of viewpoint-based restrictions rather than just a normal and, time, and place, it, and manner restriction. And it may just appear that there is a viewpoint restriction when exactly. we don't know the full context. In because if Ben Shapiro gets, gets banned from a, from a college campus, then all the conservative this websites... This is columnist and, and television personality right. all, The conservative websites are going to go nuts and say, oh, that college isn't letting Ben Shapiro... But if that same college doesn't let Hillary Clinton come speak, those websites might be silent. 
But That's right. a whole different set of websites would go nuts about that. Right. And so I'm just saying we need to make sure that it really is a viewpoint-based restriction and not we're, it's a time, place, and manner. It wasn't that it was Ben Shapiro. It was that he wanted to speak at 4 o'clock in the morning with a bullhorn. Right. And right. Um, you all see what I'm saying. There, time, place, and manner restrictions are okay. If it's a viewpoint-based restriction, that is a problem. It certainly seems to be, I think we would all agree that college campuses are generally perceived as pretty liberal places. Mm -hmm. It certainly appears to be that there is a, at least a strata of college campuses that are restricting access of conservative speakers. And in response to that, there is a strata of maybe not universities per se, but university groups that are reacting and prohibiting some liberal speakers. And right. so it's happening on both sides. And where it's a viewpoint-based um, restriction, I think you really do have a First Amendment problem, at least as when we're in the public sphere, public education sphere. Even if, okay, but only at a government school. If, if it's well, a private school. It, then... it gets a little more complicated. If it's a private school that's accepting government funding for certain oh, things. Oh, yeah. Got it, it. I mean, Got we're it. starting to get into gray areas there, which is probably beyond where you want to go right. with this conversation. Right, right, exactly. All right, well, see, you, you bring up then um, something that is, is close to uh, what has been happening in San Antonio, and you've been keeping up with that. A actually, even before we had talked, you had you had uh, been reading up on, I mean, of course, it's, it's been in the national media and certainly around the state. Uh, people have been talking about this. But our, our own San Antonio City Council, with respect to uh, the vendor plan for the San Antonio International Airport, and the measure was introduced um, by the District 1 councilman to disallow a certain vendor, in this case Chick-fil-A, from being a part of this uh, vendor plan, um, multi-vendor plan. And the reason, the stated reason, Lynn, uh, as reported in uh, well, as, all as kinds of outlets, and as he was quoted, not just reported, but as he was quoted in, in various media outlets, uh, was that it was a history of their um, Political associations or their their monetary uh, right their support of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and right. the and the and Salvation, Salvation Army. Army those those uh, those firebrand groups that uh, no but but I mean historically they haven't been associated with you know rabble rousing kind of uh, toxic views. However, uh, it does seem like everything is coming under a, a microscope these days and probably amplified by uh, a lot of what is going on in social media which then uh, puts pressure on politicians to respond in a certain way because there was a story, this measure was introduced uh, in the city council meeting uh, after a story had come out on a left-leaning website uh, reporting the financial contributions of Chick-fil-A. And so, uh, you know, then you have the response of this, of this person, uh, of this council, uh, councilman, in introducing this measure, given and giving his stated, uh, giving his reasons for it. Later, uh, the idea, uh, later on now, the idea has been floated that it's, it's actually uh, company policy uh, that is unworkable with the San Antonio International Airport expectations, uh, i.e., they're closed on Sunday, uh, the, the company, and so they can't provide the kind of service that 
SA International was looking for. But comments or thoughts from you on that. When I first heard what your city council had done, my first reaction was that's never going to stand constitutional scrutiny. That, that's my gut reaction. The more I think about it, the more I think, well, I still think that's right, but it is not a clear case. And let me give you some reasons why. It, it's not, what you're saying is... It's, it's not a slam dunk It's not lawsuit. a slam dunk. It's not a slam okay. dunk lawsuit. There right. are some defenses that the city council would have. Um, in the first place, I'm not convinced that it's as much of a First Amendment issue as, a, as it is a 14th Amendment issue, which gets beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But the 14th Amendment guarantees liberty and equal protection of the law to all citizens um, as long as due process is applied. And um, this, this may be more of a general liberty issue than it is a First Amendment issue. That's beyond us. With but, regard it, but it does, before you go on, I just want to say, it does have, you have to admit, it does have all of the, the ingredients of this uh, sort of um, black hat, white hat kind of thing, because you've got a government entity. Sure. Uh, so so the First Amendment issues here, um, if we're talking about freedom of speech, there's also a freedom of religion issue, but let me talk about the freedom of speech part of this first. The issue is not anything that Chick-fil-A has said, right? It's who they give their money to. Okay, if you've been following the news, you know that the Supreme Court has said that money is speech, and that was in a case called Citizens United, but that was talking about political, political contributions. Political contributions, right, right. right. Here we're talking about religious contributions. We're talking about contributions made to FCA and to um, Salvation, Salvation Army. Army. And there was, a, there was a children's home in there too, I think, those three. So I think the city council at least has an argument to say that this is not political speech, and so if this were made a First Amendment issue, you would be expanding even further the argument of whether money equals speech. That's an ar I think they would lose. I think that Chick-fil-A would win. I'm not saying that I think they're wrong. I think that that's okay, an argument that the but say that have. say that again. Take, break that down again. If this is a freedom of speech issue, the, the prerequisite there is, is this speech, right? Is money or... Well, is, the, is speech involved? And so okay. what speech is involved? The speech that Chick-fil-A is being punished for, ostensibly, according to Councilman Trevino's quotation, is their gift, their offerings, their, their donations to FCA and the Children's Home and Salvation Army. So then the question is, are those donations of money, quote-unquote speech, pursuant to the First Amendment? Citizens United says that money is speech in the context of a political contribution. And Citizens United, again, is this case that was brought before the Supreme Court. Right, which okay. was the case about campaign finance reform. Right. There's not a U.S. Supreme Court case that says that non-political giving is speech. So I'm just saying that there's an issue there. There's a second issue here. We're talking about a corporation, right? We're talking about Chick-fil-A. Corporations have some First Amendment <clears throat> rights, and again, Citizens United says they have the free speech rights. It says there are people, right? In the context of okay. political speech. All right. Some of you have heard about the Hobby Lobby case, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, 2014. Uh, that was the birth control case, um, health insurance with regard to Hobby Lobby, which extended corporate rights into a freedom of religion and freedom of religious expression issue. But there's also, and again, I don't want to get too legalistic here, 
but the Supreme Court made quite a distinction there, or quite a point of saying that Hobby Lobby is what's called a closely held corporation, which means essentially it's a family company, as opposed to something, I mean, you can buy stock in Hobby Lobby, but it's not the same kind of public offering that Chick-fil-A is. My point is not to say it's not a First Amendment issue. My point is to say from a legal standpoint, if First Amendment were to, if, excuse me, if Chick-fil-A were to sue San Antonio over this decision, while I think, from my perspective, I think they would win. I would rather be representing Chick-fil-A than the city of San Antonio. Yeah. It is not a slam dunk. It requires some formal recognitions that have not yet been recognized in the area of money on the commercial side as opposed to the political side, and another step forward in terms of corporate speech, which is why I think the 14th Amendment may be the easier way to go because you wouldn't have to jump through those hurdles. That may be getting way too technical. I think Brian's basic point of white hats and black hats and the government coming in and saying, we're not going to let you open a store because we don't like who you've been supporting certainly strikes at the heart of our yeah, concept sort of, of yeah. fundamental liberty and fundamental ideas and expression. I agree with that. I'm just saying from a legal standpoint, there are some hoops to jump through. But, but we, now, let's, let's take this in a little more philosophical uh, direction. I'm not uh, being philosophical enough? Well, no, I mean, you're, you're being, in, in a legal sense you are, but, uh, but let's, let's take this, um, isn't it good, isn't there a good in society uh, for us to be um, protective enough of the right of um, people and, and businesses to do, you know, private enterprise to do what they want, um, even when we are, you know, against it, like in the example that, that uh, we had with the table talk. You okay, know? so... Presumably, you are either, offended is a strong word, presumably you either politically disagree with the city council's action with Chick-fil-A or you disagree with the example, right? I mean, either you want Chick-fil-A to be able to have the store or you want the Planned Parenthood supporting. I mean, pretty much those two examples together are going to cover most of us. Yeah. So philosophically, I think that if you're going to answer yes to Brian's question, you've got to let both groups go. You've got to either say the government stays out of all of it just to say it's okay for the government to kick out either Chick-fil-A or the Planned Parenthood supporting group, but not the other. Then you would be exercising viewpoint-based mm -hmm. discrimination, which, by the way, is fine. We all have our viewpoint, and it's fine for us to argue with each other and try to it's fi try fine for me to persuade Brian that my viewpoint is right and his is wrong. But when I'm the government and I am imposing that viewpoint and saying, you, because you have this viewpoint, don't get the same rights and privileges that you do, that's where we run into a problem. Nobody says that there's anything wrong with having a viewpoint. The problem is when the government establishes one as the state-approved viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And if you hold this view, you get rights and privileges that other people don't have. That's what the Bill of Rights is intended to prevent. Isn't it akin? That's my philosophical answer. Isn't it akin to the, um, you know, in some in some societies you have, for instance, uh, legislation that prevents laws on the books that prevent somebody from denying the Holocaust, for instance. Uh, you cannot engage in speech that that does this. Uh, maybe Austria. I, I can't recall. Maybe Germany. Even I, I don't know. But. Um, but is Israel. 
Israel? Okay, all right. You cannot deny the Holocaust. Now, we might say, well, uh, you know, folks have suffered and, and you know, the, these ideas, maybe that's an exception. This is just such a horrific time. But it seems like we always point back to, I mean, who's the big bad guy that we want to compare everybody to? Hitler. Who, what's the big bad event we want to, you know, point to? The Holocaust or whatever. But there are, there are, those are not outliers in the sense that it, it is something foreign to the human condition. It was just perhaps concentrated on a worldwide scale. But um, we have the um, ability to, to uh, lord it over one another in smaller ways all the time. So what is the chill? Is there a chilling effect on society when we establish what can and cannot be said? Uh, there, a viewpoint? We establish a... A, an official viewpoint? There certainly is the concern about a chilling effect. If you start hampering what people can say, then people start saying, then what's the point? I'm just not going to express my views. Let me take what Brian has said in a little different way, a different way that we have arguably chilled expression or chilled, going back to where Brian started, ideas. And some of you may not have thought about this in this context, and some of you may radically disagree with me, but within the last 10 or 15 years in this country, really starting about, well, certainly within the 21st century, starting about 2002, 2003, we started having laws about what we now all routinely call hate crimes. And a That's hate right. crime right. is one in which you've committed a crime, but the prosecution convinces the jury that your motivation for it was on the banned list. You get a worse sentence. So if I shoot Brian because I don't like his shirt, I get sentence A. By the way, I find that offensive. But if I shoot one of you because you are a homosexual and they prove that I am against homosexuals or I shoot you because of your race or I shoot you because you are a woman or I shoot you because of whatever else is on the banned list, it's the same. They're both murderers, but if my motivation is viewed to be expressing a viewpoint that they and we, we all would agree are wrong viewpoints, but if that viewpoint is tied with the crime, we assign a higher penalty to it. And, there, and nobody makes any bones about it. I mean, it's, it's expressed. This is what we are doing. We are punishing people for their viewpoint. And the argument is, but we as a society have agreed, we all agree that these viewpoints are so horrendous that we're going to punish you for it. Well, that is accepted. But, but, but that never existed before. That, that's a and, new concept in the yeah. 21st century. If you go back, if you, it's interesting. I happen to be a fan of the show The West Wing. I don't know if any of you is a fan of the West Wing. West Wing, Aaron Sorkin's the writer, generally considered to be a very liberal show. Correct. Well-written, liberal show. If you go back, there are episodes of the West Wing in 2001, 2002, where they deal with the idea of hate crimes. And they've got this whole question of can we even, uh, is it even possible to discuss hate crimes because isn't that punishing people for ideas in their minds? Well, now, here we are 15 years later. Yeah, and we've no, lost that. Nobody even gives a second ago. thought yeah. to it. That's another way that this chilling effect happens, right? It's not just that it chills speech, but it chills people's willingness to challenge intrusions into liberty. I'm not in favor of shooting people because they're gay or black or female. I am raising the question of, 
I also am not in favor of shooting Brian because I don't like his shirt. To me, a murder is a murder is a murder. Yeah, and I still find it offensive. But the, the point is that you're right. I mean, your point is taken. It is a viewpoint, and we cannot discuss it. And just because it's a horrendous viewpoint, the question is, do we want to start legislating based on viewpoint? Because... We start with the horrendous viewpoints, and then we move to the viewpoints that 75% of people don't like. And then we move to the viewpoints that 51% of people don't like. And now we have really run afoul. The whole point of the, of the Bill of Rights is to protect the minority, right? We don't need a Bill of Rights to protect the majority. The majority wins at the ballot box. The point of the Bill of Rights is to protect the rights of the minority that would otherwise be trampled. And so when it's a hate crime and it's 99.999% of the people hold that viewpoint, it's easy to say... Really, if you're, if you're in favor of that viewpoint, we don't care. But then we start, once we accept the idea of punishing viewpoints, it starts traveling. And that's the objection. That's the philosophical objection to viewpoint-based penalties. Right. If, if we, rather than murder being um, a crime, uh, it is now murder plus that is... That is a the, the exact same murder gets different penalties based on why you did it. If, if, they, if a jury believes that you were trying to express a certain viewpoint by committing that crime, you get a, bitter, a, a harsher penalty. Now, let me complicate that. From a layman's standpoint, I've got to ask this question. Don't, didn't we already do that, though? But we, have, we have murder in the first degree. You know, or we have a premeditated act versus a that crime That didn't have anything passion. to do with viewpoint. That's, that didn't have, no, that's no, no. not the viewpoint of the assailant? No, it's... Murder in the first degree is, it's premeditated. It's not why it was premeditated, it's just that it was premeditated, as opposed to an unpremeditated act of passion. No, the, the, the differences in degrees of murder were not based on why you did things, they were based on whether or not there was premeditation or other kinds of factors, but they weren't based on the viewpoint of you were trying to express something by committing that crime. Oh, okay, okay. I never knew so, that. So, Tip, you know, it varies from state to state, but you have, a pre, you have premeditated, you have a crime of passion, or then you have manslaughter, which is accidental, right? Those are going to get different levels. None of those has to do with, well, but I did it because I was trying to express the fact that you are a bad person because it was just, I killed you, it was premeditated, that's first-degree murder. Okay, okay. Um, so, is, do you see, then, a, this juggernaut of creeping... Uh, viewpoint policing uh, going on into the future. Well, look, let's take it out of the context of the First Amendment just a second. Y'all live in, y'all work, y'all go to school, you live in neighborhoods, you all know about the PC police, right? You all know that if there are views that you want to express, you're now giving second thoughts to it depending on what crowds you are around, not because anybody's going to throw you into jail, but just you don't want the hassle of having to state certain things on whichever side of the view. The PC police goes both ways. It does, and in churches, we've had well, that sure. for a long time. Well, sure. Before it leaked into the general population. And, and it grows as certain restrictions become more accepted within society. The same thing happens at the governmental level. If we allow viewpoint restriction, viewpoints to be, ideas to be illegal, the government to pass laws against them a little bit, then, wow, if that's illegal, maybe I don't want to say this. Who knows if I'm going to get in trouble? And so it creeps. Um, okay. Well, this, let's, let's ask this. Uh, I, I do want to ask this. 
Um, people of uh, people who are um, people who see a higher purpose for uh, behind uh, the universe. You know, the, the who are disciples of Jesus Christ, who are people of faith. Um, are we? What is our place in this issue? How do we respond? How do we say, um, let us preserve the free expression of ideas? Uh, and, you know, even when those ideas are difficult, I mean, what do we do? We have a responsibility to, to think about that? Yes. I believe that there's no question that Christians can live within the constitutional system. Um, the rule of law is something that historically American Christians have had no trouble supporting by and large. And even when, as Brian refers to a higher power or a higher purpose, what happens when we as Christians, and this, this may be getting beyond the First Amendment idea, but it, it circles back, right? When, when we as a Christian believe that there is a law that is unjust or we believe that, there is, that we as a Christian have to take a different step, right? We, yeah. we call that civil disobedience, right? right. You, you can t look at the civil rights movement and, and Dr. King if you want to, but that, Dr. King didn't invent that, right? He, he, was, he was taking his term from Henry David Thoreau in the 18th century and it goes back to Sophocles in the 5th century B.C. If you, if you remember reading Antigone in school, right? Antigone was the first published, or it wasn't even published then, but it's, it, it was the first widespread drama about the concept of civil disobedience. And a, and a function of civil disobedience is there's a higher power. I'm going to do what I think is right, but I'm going to submit myself to the law. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to follow the higher ruling, but if that is illegal, I've got to be willing to go to jail for it. Martin Luther King went to jail a whole lot, right? Nonviolent protests. He followed what he thought was right, and, but he was willing to say, oh, but I understand that the law right. says I go to jail for yeah. this, yeah. right? Socrates, go back to the 5th century BC, where we, where we see the beginning of the rule of law, right? Socrates argued forcefully that he should be executed. He said, I've had a trial. We here in Athens believe in trial by jury. I think the jury was wrong. I wish they had found differently. But they found that I should be executed. And therefore, even though I'm going to continue to say what I say, I also believe that the rule of law should be carried out. Hmm. So I think the, the reason I go through all that is to say to Brian's question, I think as Christians we obviously have a higher power and we have a higher authority. But as Americans, under our constitutional system, when, when our following of that higher authority conflicts with the law, until we vote them out, as somebody said, until we vote them out and change the law, right? Jesus was pretty clear about our submission to the governmental authorities. Right. He didn't say, um, just follow me and, and everybody, you know. You do follow him, but you're also submissive to the government authority. So I think the answer to your question, Brian, is yes, we can live within that system. And as long as we're going to stay with the American system, we have to live within that system. And sometimes that means that our following the higher power has a real cost. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, let's, uh, let's turn now to some of these questions that folks have sent in. Um, should social media be regulated? So, should social media be regulated is obviously a broad question. Let me go back to what I said about time, place, and manner restrictions. I do not believe that social media should be viewpoint regulated. I don't believe that it, government should be able to come in and say, you're allowed to publish these ideas, but you're not allowed to publish these ideas. Again, with the, the exceptions we all agree with. You shouldn't be putting pornography, uh, uh, obscenity, fighting words, clear, you know, clear and present danger. But uh, those kind of things that we accept in general, I don't have any problem with regulating social media in time, place, and manner. For example, if, if we wanted to say that you have to be of X age or you can't use it in school or, you know, uh, children under 16 can, uh, can't be on social media more than X hours a day. Right. I don't have any problem with I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing for a particular one. In concept, I don't have a problem with that. I don't know how workable that is. I'm not suggesting a law. But my point is what I wouldn't want it to say is we're going to ban these certain websites because we don't like what they say. That I would have a severe problem with. Because that's viewpoint, and that gets us into the whole chilling effect and all of these things that we've been talking about. Um, okay. Uh, why does this, this is somewhat of an interesting uh, take here. Why does this affect me as a consumer? Why is this important? It feels like the public is blowing this way out of proportion. I, I, I interpret that question as why is freedom of speech important to me? Why, well, why is... Why is this issue uh, that that of the airport uh, vendor is how I okay. took that? Okay, if, if, if we're talking specifically about the airport issue, yeah. you know, if in the first place... How does it affect me as a, cons as a consumer? Okay, it, I don't know that it affects you as a consumer. If you're looking at this purely economically, you can go to Chick-fil-A somewhere else, right? Uh, while you're walking through the airport, you can't have a Chick-fil-A. You know, there are lots of restaurants you can't have. There are only 10 openings and uh, it's going to be restricted. I'd, what I would suggest to you is not to limit your view of these questions to your view as a consumer. There is a larger issue here, and that larger issue is what is your government allowed to do? What kind of restrictions are you willing for your government to place? Because if they can place it on this company today, could they place it on another company tomorrow, and how long before they come in after you? That's the theory behind the, the Bill of Rights as a whole, right? We are protecting citizenry from the overarching power of the government. Remember that the Bill of Rights grew out of a revolution against a tyranny. Yeah. Okay? Now, that may seem far away to you now, but the reason it seems far away to you now is because we've had 240 years or it's 230 we years have, we have these of the Bill of Rights. Yeah. And we have protected and we've built up this wall against tyranny. So is it going to affect you in the next two weeks or maybe even the next 10 years? Marginally. But I think we have to take a little bit bigger view here when we're talking about constitutional principles. We're looking at how it affects the people as a whole and what is our future going to be like. Um. The establishment, of, uh, the establishment Clause refers to Congress specifically. Shouldn't the states still be allowed to establish a religion if they want? Well, no, they shouldn't. And as I said at the beginning, 
the, the limitation of the First Amendment to Congress went the way of the buffalo a long time ago. The, the Congress passed the 14th Amendment, which was specifically designed to, I mean, the whole purpose of the 14th Amendment was to extend the rights protected by the First Amendment, or by the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, to extend those to all levels of government. That's the whole purpose of the 14th Amendment to our Constitution. So the fact that the First Amendment says Congress is an anachronism now because we have the 14th Amendment, and there's a slew of Supreme Court cases that, that make exactly that point. These life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness ideas are protected. Due process of law, equal protection has to be extended at all levels of government. Okay. Separation of church and state. You referenced that phrase earlier. It does not appear in the Constitution. That is correct. Or its amendments. Why do we treat it like gospel? The separation of church and state was a terminology that was used by the framers at the same time they were creating the Bill of Rights. They didn't use that term in the Bill of Rights. You can find it in the Federalist Papers. You can find it in the writings of Jefferson. You can certainly find it in the writings of Madison. Madison was a, a, a huge proponent of it. Yes, it is not in the First Amendment. We have two clauses of the First Amendment that speak to religion. The Free Exercise Clause, Congress isn't, now government isn't to imp impede our ability to exercise religion, and the Establishment Clause, that the government isn't to establish religion. Why do we treat it as gospel um, is that most legal scholars, having read what the framers wrote at the time that they were writing the Bill of Rights, believe that these two clauses were meant to embody the concept of the separation of church and state. But as I said earlier, separation of church and state is different from separation of church from state. It's, it's not intended to mean that you check your religion at the door when you uh, enter Congress or you run for office or you are, it, it doesn't mean that you are to be irreligious or non-religious, it means that you don't favor one religion over another. Um, are there people who take it too far? Yeah, there's people who take it too far um, in lots of contexts. But if I could, since we're in a church setting, if I could use a church example, and this may rub some of you the wrong way, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Okay, it doesn't. But we all believe in the Trinity. Sometimes there are ideas that are made clear in something that's written, even if a particular word is not used. That's a great analogy. Yeah. And, and yeah. The, I, the concept, at least properly understood, of the separation of church and state is embodied in the words of the First Amendment. Yeah, okay. Um, let's, uh, one more question here, and that is, um, a few years ago, um, and this, this may have to do with more of the 14th Amendment, but a, a few years ago, a cake baker uh, ran into some trouble, as you remember. Uh, a couple of those, actually, in Colorado and in Oregon, I think. Um, at what point is a business um, not allowed to express their opposition to something or refuse service? So I think everybody's generally aware of what we're talking about. I, 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 I won't recreate the wheel. If you don't know what, what the background of what Brian's saying is, come talk to me afterwards. I, this is one where I think the Supreme Court has generally gotten it right. The line that seems to be being drawn is you can't just refuse service, right? Kroger can't say, we're not going to serve X category. 
racially, gender, uh, sexual orientation, right? No, nobody can say, Chick-fil-A, for all of its political contributions, can't say we're not going to sell chicken sandwiches to homosexuals. The cake bakers, what the Supreme Court has said is, the cake bakers can't say, I'm not going to bake you a cake, but they can say, I'm going to refuse to put a message on the cake. I'm going to refuse to, uh, you know, if you want me to decorate the cake to say, God bless gay marriage, I'm not going to do that, because that would be forcing me to express an idea. So the line that's been drawn is, it is viewpoint neutral for the government to say, you've got to take on all comers. If someone, if you're offering your services to the public, you've got to offer them to the public. Now, you don't have to do that. You don't have to enter the marketplace to start with. You have every right to say, I'm not going to serve the general public. I'm only going to have a business that serves the membership of First Baptist Church. Okay? You can do that. But if you open your business to the general public, it's got to be open to the general public. But you can't be forced. If you're a Jewish baker, you can be forced to serve cakes to whoever comes in, but you don't have to paint swastikas on them. If you're a Muslim baker, you can, you're, you're, you've got to serve whoever comes in, but you don't, have to, you don't have to decorate it with God bless the infidels. Okay, that is how I see the distinction that the Supreme Court has drawn, and that seems to make sense to me. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say, my religion says I'm not going to serve you. Well, you've entered the public. It's not viewpoint-based to say you've got to serve all the public. It, but I, can't, I, the government, can't make it illegal for you to refuse to express a certain idea. I still have the freedom to express or not express whatever idea I want to. To me, that line, I think the Supreme Court has drawn pretty deftly. Okay. All right. Um, can we thank our guest, Lynn Robbins, here tonight?